0: All right, Uh, and kids, as you go, if you're a kid who's seven to nine, you're actually staying here all month. Uh, There's not a children's church teacher for ages seven to nine, so you get to join us and perhaps try to draw some pictures of the things that I'm talking about up here. We're going to be returning to first Peter chapter 5 verses eight and nine. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles we'll be going to 1 Peter, chapter 5 verses eight and nine. By way of announcement next week we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, also our fellowship meal and a, a members meeting to follow, so please plan for that. We also have a membership class which is starting on January 16th. If you want to sign up for that, you get to spend some time with Jeff Campbell and membership class. I want to go to membership class just because I know that Jeff is teaching it, but it doesn't work that way. Our home fellowship groups are also going to begin on the week of January 16th. So, we anticipate beginning those again, and we will be using that time for the application of the Sunday sermon to discuss those. I also want to make you aware that beginning on February 5th, we will beginning leadership training. Uh, This is a training that Dave and I plan to do starting in February for men who are Uh, interested in potentially becoming elders or deacons in the future, or they're interested in leadership uh, in general, and they're wanting training and to see if uh, God is calling them toward that task. Our meetings are going to be on Saturdays from 7 in the morning to 8.30, and the first section of that is going to go from February to May, so I'll be uh, all Saturdays except Spring Break Saturday in February through May. This is a way for us to be faithful to 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. It says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So if you men are interested in that, please uh, let me know. We'll begin that in February. Everybody else, please be praying for the future leaders which God is raising up among us as i said we're returning to first peter chapter five if you thought we were done with first peter we are not Uh, we're going to return back to verses eight and nine i wanted to give some more preaching on those texts and I'll have at least one more message in this letter before we leave it that Lord willing we will do in February. Let's uh, open in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank You that You speak to us and that You speak to us even through weak clay vessels like myself. I pray that You would show Yourself strong through my witness and that you would help us to hear your word, to live by it, that it would be rightly divided and applied. We pray that you would amaze us with who you are and strengthen us in the certain hope that we have in Jesus Christ as we would consider your word. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you disciple us. Amen. In 1942, the Reserve Police Battalion 101 of the German Order Police was responsible for the roundups of Jewish people into Nazi death camps in Poland, where they performed some of the most horrific mass shootings known in history. The details of such events leave one wondering what kind of person could ever bring themselves to commit such an atrocity, and why didn't they resist doing those things? In Christopher Browning's book, Ordinary Men, he reveals that most of the men in the Reserve Police Battalion 101 were not fanatical Nazis, but rather ordinary, middle-aged men, working-class men who committed these shootings and mass murders. And they did so with a mixture of motives. For some of them, the pressure of conformity to what was going on was enough. Browning writes, along with ideological indoctrination, the battalion had orders to kill Jews, but each individual did not. Yet 80 to 90 percent of the men proceeded to kill, though almost all of them at least initially were horrified and disgusted by what they were doing. To break ranks and step out to adopt overtly nonconformist behavior was simply beyond most of the men. It was easier for them to shoot. As we think about such things, I think you could say that it was a fear of man that led to conformity to man. Amidst the group dynamics of conformity, Some had other motives mixed with deference to authority or adapting to their perceived role and the altering of moral norms within the culture to justify their actions. Altering moral norms like Jews have typhus and for the sake of public health must be sent to containment camps. Altering moral norms like Jews are a threat to the stability of the political system and must be removed for a superior and safe society. These ideas created moral confusion in men, which emasculated them because they had no firm stance on truth and they were able to be pressured into a confused state of committing all sorts of evil. Browning captures such confusion in this section from his book, where he writes, Major Trapp was never there. Instead, he remained in Poland because he allegedly could not bear the sight. We men were upset about that and said we couldn't bear the sight either. Indeed, Trapp's distress was a secret to no one. At the marketplace, one policeman remembered hearing Trapp say, Why did I have to be given these orders? As he put his hand on his heart. Another policeman witnessed him at the schoolhouse. Today, I can still see exactly before my eyes Major Trapp there in the back room pacing back and forth with his hands behind his back. He said something like, man, such jobs don't suit me, but orders are orders. Another man remembered vividly how Trapp finally alone in our room sat on a stool and wept bitterly. The tears really flowed. Another also witnessed Trapp at his headquarters. Major Trapp ran around excitedly and then suddenly stopped dead in front of me, stared, and asked if I agreed with this. I looked him straight in the eye and said, No, Air Major. He then began to run around again and wept like a child. The doctor's aide encountered Trapp weeping on the path from the marketplace to the forest and asked if he could help. He answered me only to the effect that everything was very terrible. Concerning Poland, Trapp later confided to his driver, if this Jewish business is ever avenged on earth, then have mercy on us Germans. There's a lesson to be learned from Nazi Germany, which I think Christopher Browning captures well in his book title. What kind of men commit such atrocities? Ordinary men. In this case, it was metal workers, bakers, shop owners, fathers, ordinary men. Ordinary men who weren't willing to resist, who weren't willing to take a stand. And why did they do it? Well, a little bit of indoctrination, a little bit of fear, a little gradual push to do it, and they did. They didn't resist because they didn't have a prior commitment to stand on anything else. This is all illustrative of how the devil works to get ordinary people to succumb to great evil. A little indoctrination, a little fear, a gradual push to just do it. So how can ordinary people... Prepare to not end up like other ordinary men. Our text this morning gives us instruction for that. If you join me in your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter 5, I'll be reading verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter is here at the end of his letter summarizing things that he has said throughout his book about being sober-minded. For the first part of this sermon, what I'd like to do is to go back and summarize these things that we've learned about being sober-minded sojourners, seeking to follow the Lord who has called us out to belong to Him and follow Him, and also to include some of the ideas that the Apostle Paul expresses of the spiritual armor that we're to wear as we seek to be sober-minded and watchful following our Lord. Let's consider those words, be sober-minded and be watchful. You remember here, Peter is writing to the elect exiles. He's saying, elect exiles, while you are in exile, remember that you are the elect of God. You belong to Him now, and you will belong to Him forever. Your mind needs to be focused on your salvation being worked out today in holiness, and your salvation being fully obtained at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your hope is alive, and your hope is coming. Your only hope in life and death is Christ alone. And your future salvation is being worked out in the present because of what Christ accomplished for you in the past. This is how Peter begins his letter in praising God for salvation. You turn back to look in chapter 1 in verse 13. You'll see that Peter writes, Because of this great salvation that your hope is set upon, prepare your minds for actions or gird up the loins of your mind. He's giving us a reminder of the Israelites being rescued out of Egypt to remind us to gird up our robes like the Israelites in Egypt, getting ready for their Passover deliverance. Get ready to receive your salvation. Your Redeemer is going to deliver you from an evil king to serve the king of kings. He's going to deliver you from living under an evil law to live under his good law. He's going to deliver you from hard slavery to happy slavery. And as Moses heard in Exodus 14, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which He will work for you. As we do that, we wear the spiritual armor, which Dave preached on from Ephesians chapter 6. I'll remind you of those things in this part of this message. We are reminded in Scripture that we are to cinch down the belt of truth around your waist, You will need to know and to be committed to Christ and His cause of making His salvation known to the ends of the earth. You are going to suffer, but you need to remember that the one who suffers conquers. Let your life be a display of the salvation which you will certainly receive. Let it be a display in your body until you are given a body like your Savior's. And as sure as you will suffer, you will be saved. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, which is not your righteousness, but it's Jesus' righteousness. It's a gift to you to wear and to enjoy every day. As the prophet Isaiah proclaimed of the Messiah, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak, According to to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. This is a reminder that Messiah Jesus is your righteousness. He is your salvation and your avenger. Let him be the beginning and end of every thought, every affection and action. And as you stand firm, stand in the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. Do not fear the ones whom you are to be witnesses of Christ to, nor be troubled by them. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Take up also the shield of faith. Take up the shield of trusting in God's Word. The world will tempt you to distrust God's Word, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. Trust that all of the enemy's darts will be turned into a refiner's fire. His his attacks will prove to be for your weapon training. He intends to harm you, but Jesus Christ intends to heal you. Every curse will be turned to blessing, every evil to good. Everything in creation must work together for God's glory and for your salvation. Take up also the helmet of salvation. Think about how trials not only purify your faith, but show you that your salvation is a present reality. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You can have confidence in the full and final salvation to come as you see it happening in you today. Take up the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. Your posture in spiritual warfare is not merely defensive. You'll need to be on the offense as well. Like newborn infants long for the unadulterated, reasonable milk of God's Word so that by it you might grow up into salvation. The world has its reasoning about things, but you need God's reasoning from God's Word. And as the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth, the defender and upholder of truth. We remember what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We desire that God's whole counsel be proclaimed to the whole creation. And we are the people who pray at all times in the Spirit, that is, according to the will of God. While we are on the offensive line, we are always to maintain prayer and the Word. Prayer and the Word is your lifeline and your lifeblood. So pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Also, pray for one another. The spiritual battle is hard and isolating yourself is foolish pray for one another and with one another pray prayers that the delight in your god pray prayers that the request that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven pray prayers that god would provide the provision that you need today to continue to seek his kingdom and his righteousness above all else pray prayers that we would Forgive one another as we have been forgiven in Christ. Pray prayers that we would not be led into temptation, but delivered from evil. And be watchful. Be watchful in prayer. Pray with alertness of what's going on throughout the world, and in the church, and in your own heart. Pray for bold gospel proclamation to the ends of the earth. Pray for the purity and the holiness of the church. Pray for the faithfulness of the saints that we would boldly speak and live Christ as we wait for His certain return. Going back to 1 Peter 1.13, after he says, prepare your minds for action, he says also, being sober-minded Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't be drunk on the fear of today, but be sober on the hope of tomorrow. Grace will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter also addresses being sober-minded in chapter 4, verse 7. If you want to turn there, in chapter 4, verse 7, Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, he writes, keep loving one another earnestly. Let the earnest love of Jesus be seen through you in the church. Let the self-denying love of Jesus be seen through you in the church. Let the sacrificial servant love of Jesus be seen through you in the church because when He is seen, He is savored by the saints. When He is seen at work in His people, He sanctifies His people because when we show Him to one another, we're drawn to Him and we're stirred up to be like Him in how we live. Peter continues, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The idea that he's conveying here is to seek to live in reconciled relationships with one another, to display the pursuing, forgiving love of Jesus and how you live with one another within the body of Christ, to maintain an attitude of forgiveness, a readiness to seek forgiveness when needed a readiness to extend forgiveness when it's sought. As Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Unity and love are among the highest priorities in the church. Jesus prayed for unity and love among his people in John 17 so that... The world may know that the Father sent Him and loves them, even as He loves Jesus Himself. Unity and love in the church testifies to the incarnation of Christ who came to reconcile sinners to God. Thus, disunity and hate in the church denies the incarnation of Christ and denies that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. A top priority in God's evangelism plan is unity and love expressed in the church as a testimony of the forgiving love of Jesus Christ, which is also expressed in showing hospitality to one another without grumbling, showing love to strangers, Christians whom you haven't met yet, but They show up and have need, and you have what they need. And by serving them, you are serving Christ. And as Peter also writes, and being sober-minded that as each has a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Use whatever gifts God has given you speaking gifts that He's given you, serving gifts that He has given you. Be sober-minded, be self-controlled, loving one another by serving one another in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now coming to 1 Peter 5, 8, and speaking of being sober-minded, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The your is a y'all. He's saying y'all's adversary, the devil. The devil is the adversary of the church. He hates the image of God displayed in the church. He hates the unity and love that is displayed in the church because it displays the unity and love that is shared between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The title devil there means slanderer. This describes the devil's character. He's a slanderer. He slanders God to man. But before he ever slandered God to man as a roaring lion, we know from our scripture reading this morning that he did so as a serpent in the garden. The devil slandered God to man in Genesis 3, and here we learn something of the devil's background. You might remember from Genesis 3 in chapter 1, it says that this serpent, this beast of the field, was made by God. God made the devil And the devil can only serve God's purposes. He is a lion that is on a chain. He doesn't have a free will. He has a bound will. He's a lion on a chain who will one day be chained in the lake of fire forever. The devil is not omnipotent. That is, he is not all-powerful. Now, he is extremely powerful, but he is not all-powerful. As Genesis 3.15 reminds us that he is a defeated foe. His head will be crushed. Also, this devil is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere present, as some may think. We are reminded and understanding that he is a made creature, that he's a created being that's limited to being in one place at a time. Though he does try to counterfeit God's omnipresence through lies and demon army, but it is not so. This devil also is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He knows more than you do, but not more than his creator He knows much about humans, having studied them for thousands of years, but he doesn't know God's people like God knows his people. He cannot search you and know you like God can. He cannot know a word before it is on your tongue like God can. Satan is not in your head any more than he was in Eve's head. He is an outside influence to what is going on in the world, and he seeks to influence the world with his demons, primarily through world leaders like the king of Babylon, the king of Tyre, King Herod, Caesar, things like this that we find in Scripture. And just as the devil is God's devil, I think it's important to mention here that hell is God's hell. Satan doesn't rule in a place called hell. He doesn't go in and out of hell. Nor do lies come out of the pit of hell, as is a common phrase among some. But rather, the father of lies and liars who spread lies and follow him will be thrown into the lake of fire someday, never to come out. The devil isn't in charge of hell. God is. It's not a place where there's some big drunken demon party where people who don't think it would be enjoyable to be with God would find a great party with their friends there. It is not so. It is a place of the punishment of the father of lies and those who followed him. Perhaps as you're sitting here and hearing this message, you are somebody who has not come to trust in Jesus Christ, and you recognize that You have sinned against Him, and you know that you deserve to go to the lake of fire with Satan because you have sinned against God just as Satan has. The good news for you is that today is still the day of salvation. Today there is salvation in Jesus Christ for all who will trust Him to forgive their rebellion against Him. Today there is salvation in Jesus Christ to deliver you from slavery to your sin, slavery to Satan, slavery to living for yourself rather than the only Savior. Today there is salvation from false knowledge to true knowledge, from false wisdom to true wisdom, from false understanding to true understanding. Today there is salvation from the father of lies unto the God of truth. And it's in Jesus Christ who is the way the truth, and the life. Set before you right now is the choice of death and life. And you are right now choosing one of them even if you think that you are not making a choice. By not choosing life in Christ, you are choosing death. By being divided in your heart and wanting to bring some of your present life and to bring Jesus in as a partner in addition to that, You are not choosing Christ, you are still choosing death. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other. As you consider these things, consider that right now God is kind to give you your life and breath and to give you ears to hear these words and to call you to repentance that you might have an invincible and eternal salvation in Him consider His kindness and that He would alert you to your sinfulness and alert you to the judgment to come, to alert you to your lack of righteousness and what God requires of you. May His kindness lead you to a repentance that leads to eternal life in Him. Coming back to the devil's character, as we learn about him in Genesis 3, we learn that The serpent was more crafty. There isn't a creature more crafty than the devil. This alerts us to the reality that his schemes aren't obvious. They're not easy to figure out. His dialogue with Eve, as you think about it, was presented as an innocent religious dialogue it was a theological conversation. It was talking about Scripture together. But as Eve would say later, he deceived me, which you can see that even in the fact that he appeared as a serpent. He didn't appear as he was. He appeared in disguise as a serpent. And as Paul writes in Second Corinthians 11, and no wonder, For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come in red flesh with a pitchfork and some fire and smoke and uh, creepy Luciferian stuff necessarily. But he comes as an angel of light. And he appeared to Eve vouching for her best interest and her highest enjoyment of God's creation. And the devil, being a slanderer, he slandered God to man. He said, did God really say that he would restrict you from doing what you think would be pleasurable in your eyes? Is he really such a restrictive cosmic killjoy? Eve, God lied. You will not surely die. The devil slandered God to man by implying that God isn't good. His word isn't good. You can't trust it. He's restrictive and dishonest. Now, notice the devil didn't just outright say that. He didn't say, God isn't good. He didn't say, God is a liar. He just suggested it while suggesting that you should make such an assessment for yourself by leaning on your own understanding rather than trusting God in all your ways. The devil is crafty, he is deceitful, and he slanders God to man by suggesting his thinking and living in place of God's thinking and way of living. He doesn't want man to live in God's image, but to live in the image of the beast that he is. Instead of God's thinking and living for his image bearers, the devil wants his thinking and living imaged in the world. In Genesis 3, we also see the devil's strategy. It's twofold. First, question God's Word. Second, contradict God's Word. Question and contradict. The devil contradicted God's Word in ways. He said, did God actually say that you shouldn't do something which clearly you think is good to do? Clearly, his word is questionable as well as his ways. The devil went on to contradict God's words and ways and outright say, You will not surely die. How can something which appears to be so enjoyable bring death? Obviously, God doesn't know what he's talking about. You were made in the image of God so you can become like God, you can decide what is good and evil for yourself. Eve, you have to trust the science. Have you ever observed anything dying from eating anything in the garden? You can trust me. As the wisest beast of the field, I'm actually an expert in the field. Look at it. Obviously, it looks good. And Eve, you can trust your senses. God made you with these desires, so they must be good. The serpent questioned and contradicted God's good word and ways, and suggested that good is something that's determined by self rather than God. Satan's strategy from Genesis 3 was to seek a people in his image who seek to deify self to be as God, and in doing so, he attacked the image of God. Causing a rift in man's relationship to God, man's relationship to others, male and female, in marriage, to all of society, and their relationship to the land, which they were to image God by having dominion over. You see, his strategy was to destroy unity and love, to destroy unity and love in the first marriage to destroy that between God and man, to destroy that personally, to destroy that among the fellowship of God's people, to destroy that in all of society because he is against God's glory being reflected to the ends of the earth through every person in his image living under God's law and never a law unto themselves. Satan not only slanders God, man, but he also slanders man to God. You might recall how in Zechariah 3, Satan accused Joshua, the Jewish high priest, of being unclean, and he slandered Joshua's character before God. But the text says, Yahweh rose as Joshua's advocate, and he said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan, Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And later that text reads of Joshua, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Here we learn that Satan accuses God's people of being unclean but we also read of the God who makes us clean. Satan is our accuser, but Jesus is our advocate. Satan may strategize to quench our zeal for Jesus Christ by emphasizing our sinfulness to the forgetfulness of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. But beloved, we know from 1 John that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So that when Satan appears in the heavenly council and he says, But look at this filthy sinner. Look at this sin that they committed. Jesus says to the Father, That's another one that I died for. That's another sin that I died for. And yes, that one also. I died for that sin too. We don't have to look to ourselves for righteousness or for a right standing with God because we don't have any righteousness of our own. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. That's why in 1 John he's referred to as Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we look to him who has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west and we stand firm wearing the breastplate of his righteousness given to us. Satan is also described as, a, as prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter may be alluding to Psalm 22 here and referring to a roaring lion. In Psalm 22, King David writes, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. You know this psalm. It's the one that begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalm also tells of mocking unbelievers, saying, He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's also the psalm where the writer says, save me from the mouth of the lion. And it's a psalm that not only tells of mockery of God, but also of praise, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you Offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and He rules over the nations. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour those who would give God such praise. We see such in the Apostle Paul's ministry, where he describes the roar of the lion and how it affected his ministry in 2 Timothy 4. This text comes from 2 Timothy 4, which I'll read to you. Paul writes, "'Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message.'" amen we see here in this text that what the lion's mouth was was the satanic influence on a human person to be an adversary to the proclamation of god's word which makes you wonder well what did the lion's roar sound like here coming through the mouth of alexander the coppersmith well perhaps Alexander the coppersmith's opposition sounded much like that of Demetrius the silversmith, whom we read about in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, it says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, with the workmen and similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship." Now, notice here in this text that gospel opposition did not come in the name of gospel opposition. It was presented as a concern for all men, concern for their business, for their wealth, for the economy, and deeply held personal beliefs. It was a concern that this teaching of Paul's was a danger to humanity. It disrupted the world's ways of doing things, their worship. The craftsmen were upset that the world's worldview from which they made their money was being challenged. If people stopped believing in the cultural gods from which they profited, they could lose some money. Certainly we have heard the lion's roar when the cultural gods of our day have been challenged too. You hear the upset of those who say, men, you know that from concerns for public health we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in California, but in almost all of America, these Christians have persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the science made with our minds is not science. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great science may be counted as nothing, and that it may even be disposed from its magnificence, she whom all America and the world worship. Brothers and sisters, the lion's roar is deceitful gospel opposition doesn't dress itself as gospel opposition. It dresses itself as good for the economy, good for politics, good for religion. Just as persecution came in the name of public health in Nazi Germany with a focus on protecting the economy from the Jews who could spread typhus in their stores and get people sick and they could lose money from it. Uh, With a focus on politics where they were encouraged to see their fellow man through the lens of race and to have a strong dependence on what the science says. And with a focus toward the religious and taking a religious text like Romans 13 and to remind the religious people that it's a godly thing to submit to government's new laws, and somehow science, and by science what they really mean is man's lawless, autonomous reasoning, was able to provide all of these new definitions of what is good and evil for all men. As a side note here, perhaps it's important to mention that secularism isn't secular. There's nothing secular in the world. Everything's religious. Everybody was made to worship and everybody worships. Everything that everybody does is in the name of worship and the religion that they believe in, even if their religion is secularism. There is no such thing as a neutral view towards God and His commands. You are either for him or against him. But when we think about how these things unraveled in Nazi Germany, it leads to asking the question, how did this great worldview travesty happen in Nazi Germany? It happened gradually. There was a prowling lion who stayed just below plain sight and gradually enlivened enough fear in men's hearts to get them to take a step back here, step back there, until all sorts of divisions were created in people's thinking and way of life. And after the divisions were made, he was able to come in and conquer. Politics were divided from theology. Political action was divided from private morals. God's law was divided from the civil magistrate, hard divisions were made between public and private, secular and sacred, law and morality, God and state. In Nazi Germany, the dominant world view was that God had his love your neighbor laws, which were to be practiced in private only, and the state had its love-your-neighbor laws, which must be practiced in public or punished. The devil did his work by dividing and conquering in his move to rebuild Babylon. Being sober-minded and watchful with a Christian worldview means and involves knowing our enemy, what God's Word teaches us about our enemy, who is an influence throughout all of the world. And to resist making these kinds of deceitful divisions in our mind, we want to think correctly about civil government, who is God's servant, the church, who is God's servant, and the family, which is to be made up of people who are servants of God, because We know that all of these things are connected and not divided. We want to keep a watch on these things because we know that Satan's influence on civil government inevitably connects to the church and the family. Joseph Boot, in his book, The Mission of God, writes, As soon as the state steps outside of its sphere, it plays God and offers every form of counterfeiting of the Word of God. In such a case, it will invariably persecute the family and church, destroying localism and people's freedom to obey God's law. Such a state will be judged by God. And once a state commands what God forbids, if Christ is truly Lord, then the Christian has the religious duty to resist. Which brings us to 1 Peter, chapter 5 and verse 9, where the Word of God says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. How do you resist your adversary, the devil? You stand. You stand firm in your faith. You live in the fear of the Lord, seeking to have your worldview shaped by God's Word alone concerning everything in life. You seek to know and live by everything in the whole counsel of God. You resist any questioning or contradicting of God's Word, seeking to take every thought captive to Christ. You stand firm in your faith because you know what you believe and where you stand, and you're unwilling to budge even an inch when you see the prowling line approaching, trying to get you to take one step back at a time. But instead, you are to stand and watch the salvation of the Lord. Recently, in Canada, an anti-conversion therapy, Bill was passed in Parliament, which will go into effect later this month. Bill C-4, as it is titled, forbids providing any person with uh, gender confusion or same-sex attraction from receiving counsel which would conform to God's intention for being made in the image of God. This bill effectively removes the freedom for such a person to seek counsel, to seek help for the struggle that they have. It also threatens imprisonment for anyone who would dare to give the gospel hope of 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you. While suffering imprisonment over being willing to speak about what God's Word says about gender and sexuality, might come to our brotherhood in Canada. There are some Christians who say, we should just keep politics out of the church. We don't wanna be persecuted for something that isn't the gospel. And if we're gonna be persecuted, we want it to be for the gospel and not some political cause and this Bill C4 stuff. Well, while that sounds very pious, it fails to understand the lordship of Christ over everything even politics. God's word and law is not just for the church, it's for every man. It's not just the church alone that's to be God's servant, it's also the civil magistrate. This bill is the work of the devil. Therefore, Christians who have the opportunity ought to resist it and to stand firm in their faith amidst it out of love for God and for their neighbor. The resistance to this bill will be seen in people still continuing to give biblical counsel, despite what Caesar may say, despite the lion's roar. The resistance will also be seen in preaching what God's Word says about gender and marriage and His intention for His creation, and also to call civil authorities to repentance for sinning against the law of God, which they are to be servants of and not enemies of. On January the 16th, Dave will be preaching on this topic as a way to stand in solidarity with our Canadian brothers and alerting civil authorities to the fact that they are at odds with the Lord of Lords and to express our desire for them to come to salvation in the only mediator between God and man and to seek to apply His law, which they are to be servants of. You understand, I think, in considering this message, that Satan's resistance to God comes from the top down. It comes from something like Caesar trying to absorb being your God your pastor, and your parent. It comes from civil authority down to the church, down to the family. You understand that Satan's strategy from Genesis 3 is to seek a people in his image, a people who deify self, to be as God, the state as God, the church as God, the family as God, self as God anything else to be God besides God. And the church is to resist Satan's schemes by upholding God's good law and gospel. But our resistance, the resistance that we're called to in the upside-down kingdom is a resistance that is from the bottom up, just as marriage was established by God as the foundation of society, the resistance begins from the bottom up. It starts with people who are made in the image of God, who are redeemed into the family of God, who gather to exalt God by reflecting His unity and love as we seek to edify one another, and to evangelize the world with the living reality that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And they can see that forgiveness and they can see that love and how we love one another. And after we gather on the Lord's Day, we are scattered to live as the salt preservative of righteousness in society, scattered as the light of God's truth to all men. We do not think in terms of defeat and surrender because we do not serve a defeated God of a defeated kingdom. We are the resistance and the one standing firm in the sovereign God of a righteous kingdom. Why do ordinary people gradually step back into becoming complicit into all sorts of evil? They don't believe in resistance. What kind of people stand and do resist, even when they recognize just a gradual shift away from God's will for His creation? It's ordinary people. Ordinary people who are resistant to stepping back because they have resolved to stand firm in their faith, to proclaim it to the ends of the earth, to every man, to all of creation, so that our hope in Christ may be seen in a world which has no other hope. Let's close in prayer as the music team comes forward. Our gracious Lord, we thank You for these commands to be sober-minded and to be watchful. We thank You for training us and teaching us about our powerful enemy but reminding us that you are the creator of that enemy that he can only serve your purposes and your end that he cannot thwart the purposes of your invincible kingdom your cause must advance through your church help us to stand firm in our faith help us to resist as You command us by your word and teach us by your word may we be encouraged and stand in solidarity with the fellowship of the suffering brotherhood throughout the world as well thank you for the high privilege of being citizens of your kingdom it is a future reality which we long for and wait for and we want realities and glimpses of that kingdom to be seen through our lives now, because we are citizens of that kingdom, and we want the salt of it and the light of it to be known today, that your love would be shown for your people, and that men would be drawn to salvation in Jesus Christ because they would see the hope that we have in you. Amen.